When my kids were younger, we used to play this fire drill game. Maybe you played something similar. Here's the way it worked at our house. Uh, we'd wait till it was nighttime and it was dark outside and I'd turn all the lights off, make the house as dark as I possibly could. Then in the path that I knew they'd be traveling, I'd kind of scatter some objects, make it kind of difficult for them to navigate their way. Then I'd take the kids to some far corner of the house and spin them around in circles about 20 times, get them real disoriented and dizzy. Then I'd put them on their hands and knees and have them crawl out of the house and I'd time them, see how fast they, they could do it. And it was fun. I'd just listen as they would bump into things because it wasn't a matter of if they would bump into things. It was a matter of when. And I'm telling you, if there was ever a fire, our kids were going to be ready. They, they knew how to stop, drop, and roll right on out of the house. But we really did listen for what they were going to bump, in, bump into because it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. It's kind of like turning on the news these days, isn't it? No one turns on the news wanting to see like, hey, what, what great things happened today? How is everyone working together and accomplishing stuff and making things happen? No, you turned on the news to see the latest damage report, to see whatever bumps and bruises have been incur incurred that day. Uh, we, we, we turn on the news, we want to find out, okay, what's going on with COVID? What's going on with our country? How are people talking about one another today? And we know it's not good. And in a climate like this, in a culture like this, what people really need is hope. And that's why I'm so excited for our series this year. It's hope for the 757, bringing hope right to our community. We're going to be studying through the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is this gripping saga of these Hebrew people who are oppressed in Egypt, living under much more ominous circumstances than we are today, and how God is going to raise up a deliverer, and he's going to provide for them a redemption from slavery and lead them out. He's going to bring them hope. These Hebrew slaves leaving, living in this sense of impending doom, they're going to be provided hope. You know, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he would write and he would say that the book of Exodus was written for our instruction and as an example to us. See, this gripping saga is not just this exciting ancient history that we read and study about. No, as we embark on this journey, we are reading events that have a direct application to how we are to live today. We get to see the power of hope. Oh, I'm so excited for this year. You are going to be encouraged. You are going to be blessed as we study through the book of Exodus. Let's go ahead and get started. Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. Hope begins with a burden. Let's check it out. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You know, we're coming off the heels of this study on the book of Joseph. And we, we saw and we studied how Jacob's family ends up in Egypt for their provision and their protection. And to understand the book of Exodus, 
Genesis really kind of provides the backstory for it. I mean, to really understand what's happening in Exodus, you kind of have to know Genesis. And in fact, Genesis 50 really sets up Exodus chapter 1. So I want to take a little bit of time this morning and just kind of walk through a little bit of Genesis 50 so that we're really prepared to understand what's going to happen in the book of Exodus. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 50, Jacob dies. And so when Jacob dies, at that moment, all the patriarchs of Israel are dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're dead. These, they weren't perfect men. These men were flawed, but they were still God's servants. They, they were the leaders of this new nation, this Hebrew nation, which was really just a family at that time. But all the patriarchs were dead. And so this, this uh, sense of just darkness kind of hangs over Genesis 50. And we see that God's servants, no matter how strong, they all come and go. And then by the end of Genesis 50, Joseph dies. And there's this just dark cloud hanging over the end of the book of Genesis. Because you st- as you take a step back, you see that humanity that began with creation in Eden ends up in a coffin in Egypt. And so that is meant to just kind of jar you awake that humanity by herself is helpless. That humanity can take what God has made perfect and we can distort it and we can twist it and we can get it all messed up because humanity by herself is hopeless. And then you end up in this godless place in this foreign land and even the best among you perish. I mean, this is the end of Genesis and this is what's hanging with you. But... In Jacob dying and Joseph dying in Egypt, in between all that, there's this glimmer of hope. Glimmer of hope is found in the most unlikely of places. It's found in a funeral service. It's found in the funeral service for Jacob. Do you remember last week, we kind of talked about how Jacob's sons went to him in Canaan and said, hey, Jacob, dad, you got to come because Joseph wants to see you in Egypt. He's alive. Come on, you got to go. And at first, Jacob didn't believe it, right? He said, no way. My son is dead. I know he's dead. I've been mourning him for the last 25 years. I know Joseph is dead. But then when he saw the Egyptian wagons out front and when he heard the words that Joseph had told his brothers to say, well, then Jacob believed and he started and they go and they head toward Egypt and Jacob gets up early one morning because he's kind of second guessing. Is all this too good to be true? Could Joseph really still be alive? And he offers these sacrifices to God and God responds to Jacob and says, Jacob, go to Egypt. I will be with you. I'm going to make you into a mighty nation there. And then I'm going to bring you back to Canaan. And when you die, Joseph is going to be right there by your side. Well, God had made those promises to Jacob and they'd come true. I mean, God really was with Jacob. They really did end up in Egypt and they were provided for. And it went well for Jacob during the last days of his life in Egypt. They were protected. It was good. And then he died. And when he died, just like God had said, Joseph was right there by his side. All these promises of God had come true. Except, except they weren't really this mighty nation yet. And they were still in Egypt. 
They were not yet in Canaan. And so as Jacob is dying, he tells his sons, you must do me this, this one thing. You must grant this one request. You must promise me that you'll do this. You must promise that you will have me buried in Canaan. See, Jacob never forgot the promises of God. Right there at the end of his life, he never forgot the promises of God that you are to be in Canaan. You weren't made for Egypt, you were made for Canaan. And so, this is the promise that he asks his, his sons to, to keep for him. Well, when times are tough, are there certain promises that you hang to? That, that you just never, never let go of, that you just cling to, and you know, oh man, yeah, things may be hard, things may be difficult, but I am trusting in this promise that God has made. That you just cling to the fact that God sees, that God knows, that God is in control, that God can identify with our pain, with our suffering. He, he knows it all. Do you have some promises that you just cling to? Maybe some verses that you have strategically placed that uh, you can see every once in a while and just remind you of God's goodness, of his faithfulness, of his sovereignty. You see, Jacob never forgot the promises of God. He never let go of the fact that his family was to be in Canaan, not Egypt. And so Jacob dies and everyone ends up mourning the loss of Jacob. I mean, it is quite a mourning that takes place. All of Egypt, all of the Egyptians will be mourning the loss of this Hebrew patriarch for 70 days. They spend 70 days grieving. And during that time, Joseph goes up to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, it's my dad's dream to be buried in his homeland of Canaan. Can we bury him in Canaan? And Pharaoh grants the request, by all means, yes, bury your father in Canaan. And even more than that, after the 70 days is over, Joseph and the whole family and all the Egyptian dignitaries loaded up all the Egyptian wagons again. And this large caravan goes to Canaan. And after 70 days of mourning, there's now a seven-day, week-long funeral service for Jacob in Canaan. It's amazing, isn't it, that these Egyptians would mourn a Hebrew man like this. Well, the grave of Jacob wasn't in Egypt. It was in Canaan. And Jacob's burial site simultaneously reminds the people of God of God's promises and the source of Israel's hope. That Israel was not meant for Egypt. Israel was meant for Canaan. This is what God has said. This is what he has promised. And this is what he will bring about. And so it's also during this final chapter where the brothers, they get nervous again. Oh no, dad's out of the pictures. Joseph now going to get revenge. And then Joseph makes that just iconic statement that we associate with Joseph. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. And then as you get to Exodus, you realize, you know, all the people of God need to be reminded of this. That what, God, that what people intend for evil, God means for good. Because for Joseph, I mean, it was really just Joseph who was afflicted. Joseph went through all this. Yeah, his family felt the ramifications of it all, but he was the one suffering through it. He was the one suffering in slavery. He was the one who suffered being slandered. He was the one who, who suffered uh, in prison. He's the one who dealt with it all. He had it all on him. 
Well, in Exodus, it's not just going to be one teenager who's sold into slavery. It's going to be a whole nation. All the Hebrew people will be in slavery. They'll all be afflicted. They'll all go through this suffering. And what they need to remember is what the Egyptians mean for evil. God will turn for good. Do you see how the promises of Genesis and how what's taking place in Genesis is going to transfer into Exodus? See, here's the thing. There is no wasted suffering for the people of God. There's no wasted suffering for the people of God. Maybe that's a reminder that you need to know this morning. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what pain, no matter what hurt, no matter what trial, no matter what struggle, whatever you may be experiencing, God does not waste the suffering of his people. And we see that throughout the scriptures. We see it in the life of Joseph. We see it in the life of the Hebrews. We see it in the life of Moses. In the New Testament, you go and you look. You see it in the life of Peter and in the life of John and the life of Paul. You see it in the life of the church in Jerusalem and in the church in Rome. You see it in the life of God himself, Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross. And he endured all that sin, all that suffering. And the promise remains the same, doesn't it? That our present sufferings are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. God does not waste the suffering of his people. He uses them and he turns them for our good and for his glory. Sometimes in ways that we don't even understand how he's working in the moment. We can't even see what he's doing in the present. But we have this hope. That God is turning it all for good. That our suffering is not wasted. Well, Genesis does end on a note of suffering. It ends in a coffin in Egypt rather than creation in Eden. And it's Joseph's coffin. Amazingly, it seems that Joseph dies without any of the pomp and circumstance that his father was afforded. I mean, you, you read it at the end of Genesis 50, and even though Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, even though Joseph was the one who had prepared this country to, to even thrive through the lean years of the famine, even though Joseph was the one who helped advance Egypt on the world stage, even though Joseph had done so much, it seems as if he just simply dies. And when he dies, he, he gathers his brothers around him and he reminds his brothers, this is not your home. You were not made for Egypt. We were made for Canaan. See that promise that God had made Jacob? Well, it got passed down to his sons and Joseph knew it and he clung to that too. I mean, Joseph, he had excelled in Egypt. He had achieved a, a level of power and prestige in Egypt. He hadn't really spent any time in Canaan since he was 17, other than maybe a week for his father's funeral. He had spent his life in Egypt. And yet he knows, I'm not meant for Egypt. We're meant for Canaan. We're God's people after all. That is the land of promise. And so he tells his, his brothers, hey, when we end up back in Egypt, or when we end up back in Canaan, back to the place we're supposed to be, take my bones with you. Carry me back there. Carry my bones there. So Joseph encourages his brothers, remember God's promises. You weren't made for Egypt. You were made for Canaan. And so as you read the book of Exodus, you read with this hope that as God's servants come and go, God's promises remain. 
You read with this hope that there is no wasted suffering for the people of God. And you read the book of Exodus with this hope that God's promises will be fulfilled, that God's people really will make it back to the land of promise. See, do you see how closely the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus are woven together? I mean, the themes of Genesis 50, they just roll over into and and spread throughout the book of Exodus. And so, this morning, in studying the first seven verses, we see that God transitions this family into a mighty nation. This is a promise that he had made to Abraham. You remember that promise, don't you? I mean, it saw its beginnings in Isaac, and it began to develop through Jacob. But God clarified that promise to Jacob. He said, I'm going to make you a mighty nation in Egypt, and then bring you back to Canaan. But think of that promise that God made to Abraham way back then. That Abraham and his wife Sarah, this childless couple, far too old to have kids, receive this promise. And then Isaac is miraculously born. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, living in Canaan. And and while he's living there, unbeknownst to him, that there is this famine that's coming. A famine so severe that it could wipe out this family. This promise that God had made, it, it almost seemed as if it were being threatened. And so God uses the jealousy and the envy, the betrayal, the slander, the forgetfulness of others, along with the dreams and faithfulness of God's, of, of Jacob's son, Joseph. And he stationed Joseph in Egypt to lead this people, to, to, to lead this family to safety, to preserve the family and the promise. And this small family that could have easily been wiped out in, in, in Canaan, well, it thrived in Egypt. It is preserved along with the promise of God. And now after Jacob had died and Joseph had died and all the brothers had died, we see this childless couple had grown into this large family in Canaan and now a mighty nation in Egypt. The family that went to Egypt was about 70 in total, but they multiplied and multiplied and multiplied to the point that now there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it really was a mighty Hebrew nation, this, this family that had such humble origins and of a small beginning in Israel. It now, because of the promises of God, they've been realized and it results in this vast nation. And so we see right here at the beginning of, of Exodus, just what God promised to do in Genesis, it, it happened. God is making a people for himself. And though their origins may have been small and humble, God will accomplish his purposes. We see that right at the beginning of Exodus. And this is a lesson that, that we need to remember, that God does accomplish his purposes. That God, what God says he will do, he will do. God says he will be near you. He is near you through his spirit. God says he wants to use you to to disciple others. He can do that. God says that he's going to come again. He will do that. God will accomplish what he purposes to accomplish. Because he's sovereign. He's in control. He has the power. He can. Something else incredible here happens. In Exodus 1.1, it says that, 
These are the sons of Israel. That's how it begins. These are the sons of Israel. Now, every other time that phrase was used in Genesis, and we saw it a number of times, it always was, was referring to Jacob's sons because Jacob was also called Israel. And so when you hear that phrase, these were the sons of Israel in Genesis, it was always Jacob's sons. And now here in Exodus, this is the last time when that phrase is used that it's simply going to be referring to Jacob's sons. Every time that phrase is mentioned after this, it's referring to the nation, the Hebrew nation. This family has now become a nation. It's, it's Jacob's lineage. And, and so we see that this family really had become a nation. It is the people of God collectively. And so you get this list of Jacob's sons. Did anything stand out to you about that list? Did you catch the fact that it wasn't in birth order? Maybe the fact that Benjamin wasn't mentioned last. Maybe, maybe that was the clue that you kind of said, huh, I wonder why it was written that way. Well, the names are given according to their mothers. So you got Leah, you got Rachel, and then after that you got the concubines. And so it's, it's as if God is just kind of subtly saying, I don't think too much of you trying to accomplish my will on your own. I don't think too much of you just getting desperate and, and just trying to make something happen. God, God, God doesn't think much of that. He thinks much of our obedience, of our faithfulness, of working in conjunction with him as opposed to just trying to make things happen on our own or reaching out with some kind of desperate thing. I mean, we hear this mysticism sometimes that kind of creeps into Christianity. You, you'll hear a pastor say, well, I didn't really prepare for this message. Just praying God shows up. You'll hear a musician say, well, you know, I just sat down. A guy just kind of praying that he'll just give me something. You'll hear a student say, I, I didn't really study for this test. Just praying God will give me the answers. You'll hear a businessman say, I'm, I'm not really ready for this meeting. Just praying that God just kind of shows me some favor. Can God work in those situations? Yes, 100%, absolutely. However, I've never met anyone who is exceptional at what they do and they haven't really worked hard. I mean, I've spent time interviewing lots of professional athletes and I never met one athlete who'd never practiced their craft but just somehow showed up and were awesome at what they did. I've talked with a lot of pastors, and any pastors who are any good, I've never met one of them who's just, well, you know, I don't really study a whole lot. No, they all work really hard at their craft. And that's, that's true of anything, right? Any position. People who excel work really hard. They are faithful to the task they've been given. Can God work in spite of our disobedience, in spite of our desperation? Yes, he can. And we see it time and time again in scripture. But what we see even more is that God loves to work in conjunction with the faithfulness of his people. Did God work through the, the desperation and the evil of the brothers? Yeah, he did. But God loved to work in conjunction with the faithfulness and the obedience of Joseph. You know, we think back to that list and how many times that list shows up and we're just reminded of the fact how precious people are to God. And people are precious to God simply because he created them. He is the creator. And back in Genesis, we see the story of how God created the world. And now in Exodus, we see the story of how God creates this nation of people for himself. Even if it's not directly stated up front, as we kind of peel back the curtain and look behind the scenes, we see this God at work who loves his people, who is making a people and forming a people, a God who loves people. 
We also see a God whose promises are trustworthy as after he had looked after this uh, old patriarch Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and now in Egypt, Joseph and now this mighty nation. God's promises are trustworthy and God loves people. And through these first seven verses of Exodus, well, Egypt is looking pretty good to the Hebrews, isn't it? I mean, think of all that's happened there. This family has been reunited there. Food was found there. This family has now blossomed into a nation there. They've multiplied. They've been blessed by Pharaoh in Egypt. Everything had gone well in Egypt. They were strong and numerous. They were wealthy and wise in Egypt. Everything looked good in Egypt. And you know how it is when you're on top of the world? You know how it is when everything seems to be going your way? You know, in moments like that, you don't really need hope a whole lot, do you? Because you have everything you want, so you can't really see what you need. Isn't that what Jesus said? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because when you have everything you want, it's hard to see what you need. You know, we talk about people losing hope when times are tough, and it's true, it can happen. But you know, people most often lose hope when times are good when they're on top of the world and they have this short-sighted satisfaction. You understand that short-sighted satisfaction is the number one hope quencher because you don't need anything. You don't think you do, you don't, you don't want anything. You have it all at your fingertips. You think you have it all and so the need for hope dissipates. Almost 400 years before the birth of Moses, Joseph, was born to Jacob. And due to God's protection and provision, Joseph ends up in Egypt to protect and preserve the promise that was made to his grandfather Abraham. And as time passed, Joseph's family, Jacob's family, grew wealthier and wealthier and it multiplied and multiplied and multiplied as each generation married and have kids of their own. This economic and familial growth continued, unabated for several hundred years. The Hebrew people were in Egypt on top of the world, life seemed good in Egypt. But God's people weren't made for Egypt. Jacob's burial site reminds us of that. God's people were made for Canaan. But to get God's people to remember that, well, they must understand that hope begins with a burden. We'll see that even more next week. You won't want to miss it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that You do not waste the sufferings of your people. That through our present sufferings, you achieve for us a glory that far outweighs them all. What may be intended for evil here, you work for our good in your glory. May we bring this message of hope to our community. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.